The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles today and open up to two passages of Scripture. Both of these are from Paul's letters to the Corinthians. The first is 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, and then also if you'll find 1 Corinthians 3, verse, verses 11 through 15. I um, prepare opening remarks for sermons, and I'll have to say that writing introductions to sermons is not my favorite part. It seems like it's hard for me to get into the material when I'm, when I'm writing sermon introductions. I'd much rather get to the points and just go on, but that's just not the way that you do things. So I usually carefully prepare what I'm going to say to you as introduction, and then something happens that just sort of upsets that, and you want to change things, which has happened to me over the past 24 hours. There are times that you uh, enter the pulpit with, not as much joy as other times. Sometimes sermons are somewhat, uh, maybe even dreadful to preach sometimes because you've uh, considered the material and you think, well, this is not going to be well received. Uh, people don't like to talk about such things. They don't like these. And other times it's totally different from that. You just really, really like to go into the pulpit to preach. Uh, there are things that come up during the week that will affect that. There may be a conversation that's been had. There might be a letter that's been sent. Some kind of communication that you have with someone that upsets you on the inside. And so when you get ready to preach, those things are still kind of hanging on in your mind as you do. And so that's, you, know, you, you just don't feel as much joy when you enter the pulpit. Yesterday afternoon, though, when I came over to church... I was able to see a, a perfect demonstration of the message that I want to preach today. And that was when I see three men that, as I spoke a moment ago, who spent their entire day over here at the church working on a project that meant something to them. We have three men, one an El Salvadoran, an Italian, and a Puerto Rican. Uh, great diversity on the street corner out here, working on a sign. And that just changed my whole perspective, I think, of the way that I approached the sermon this morning as I was driving into the church, and I see, uh, I, I spoke with them yesterday afternoon when they weren't quite, they were still working, and when I, when I came in today, and from that distance, sitting next to the corner over there across the street, that I could see their work, and I see, well, how things are developing, things are different, and it just caused me to rejoice to see an example of what I want to talk about today. Not only that, but then when talking to those men, they mentioned Bob was here a minute ago. I said, Bob? I said, Bob wasn't out here mowing the lawn, was he? And I said, no, no, he wasn't mowing the lawn, but he was inside doing something on sound, I think. And here's Bob just fresh from an operation and just getting out of the hospital and 
working, doing his favorite thing back there, and Steve who, and Bob who spent all this time trying, and, and the guys who put in the sound booth and all of that. And these are just wonderful illustrations of what I want to talk to you about today. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, the Apostle Paul wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now if you'll turn to the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3 and verse number 11, there's a related scripture that's a focus of our study today. First is this verse that we've just read. Before we enter into eternity, we will experience a time of judgment in Christ's courtroom. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Then second is the purpose of that judgment, that everyone may receive according to that he hath done, whether it is good or bad. And then thirdly, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is the evaluation of the works that we do for the Lord, the categories of these works, and what Christ will do because of them. So in verse number 11 of 1 Corinthians 3, it says, For other foundation can no man lay... Then that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned... He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Last week we finished our long series on the Ten Commandments. We ended with sermon number 40, which is the same number of years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. And some of you may have thought that you had been trapped in the wilderness as punishment during the exposition of those commandments. The Ten Commandments are hard on us, and... They seem to us to be cruel and unusual punishment because in a day when people are seeking self-affirmation, they want to talk about how good they are and they want feel-good stories from the pulpit, we don't really want to see what human nature is actually like and to understand ourselves as God sees us. And so the Ten Commandments are a reality check for us where we find that there's no room for personal ego there there is no room for the praise of men in the Ten Commandments, so people just don't like the Ten Commandments. But those commandments are also wonderful because they cause us to appreciate the work of the Savior that He's done for us in a way that we otherwise could not know. We cannot understand how great the Lord Jesus Christ is and what He's done for us until we see how wicked and vile, how perverse we are in God's eyes. There's just infinitely too much for us to overcome to be right with God. And so we are encouraged then to, to see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. And as we look at the mirror of God's Word, the Ten Commandments, we see that there are corrections to be made, and we're never to walk away from that mirror and forget what we see. The commandments lead us to Christ as our only hope. We do not have the perfection that God requires. And so we must come to Christ and trust Him as to be the satisfaction of God's law for us. So in the commandments, we, we realize the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, 
where he said there that God accepts us on the behalf of Christ. Or literally, in his words, we are accepted in the beloved. And so we're not accepted with God because of the things that we do. And I want you to, I think you know that, but I want to make it very clear before we enter into our subject today, that it's not the things that we do that make us loved by God, acceptable to God. The only thing that makes us loved and acceptable before God is Jesus Christ. That's all that there is. We dare not look at anything else. We are accepted because of the beloved Son. We are accepted in Him, in Jesus Christ. Because God loves His Son and we are in Him, that's the reason that God loves us. And so as believers, we know that after we receive Christ as Savior, that God expects a life of holiness. And that He expects that we will take these same commandments that He's given and we will obey them and we will begin to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the commandments are a mirror that we return to often, every day, to evaluate the progress that we made in our sanctification in our lives for God, for Jesus Christ. So in other words, God expects that these Ten Commandments will rule our lives. Christ satisfied the law for us, but that does not mean that he's satisfied that we should live without the law. Well, the law becomes more meaningful to us than ever before, because before, when we didn't know Christ as Savior, we were incapable, we were helpless, we were unable to receive anything good from that law, because all the law could ever do was to condemn us. But now that we've come to Christ, we understand that the law is just and holy and good and that it leads us to be more like Christ because what the law does is reveal God's character. God is in that law. The law represents Him and what He is and His holiness. And so when we live according to those commandments, then we return to the, to the proper image of God in us. In the New Testament, Peter repeated God's expectation from the Old Testament when he said, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, there are two great errors in Christianity concerning the law. The first is that Christians are free from it so that we need not concern ourselves with the law any longer. That's called the error of antinomianism which simply means, it's a big word, but it just simply means against the law. We care not for the law, we are against the law. So, the antinomian says, well, we can do anything that we want, we can live any way that we please, the law doesn't control us any longer, there is no sin that we can commit that will ever condemn us, because Christ paid the penalty of the law for us forever. That's a variation of ancient Gnosticism, that taught that the spirit and the body are radically separate so that one doesn't affect the other. So the spirit in man is not affected by the physical activities of the body. And as you can imagine, that would lead into all sorts of wickedness. That any sin that we commit is fair game, especially sexual sins, because that's mainly what they use or wanted to justify. So most Christians would soundly reject that kind of attitude. And yet, in practice, that's the way that we often live. What Christians do is to rely on their eternal security. Once saved, always saved. 
And they believe that that protects them so they can live any way that they please. And we have an answer for that error in our text today. The second error is called legalism. And strictly speaking, legalism is the belief that we can be saved by the law. And we've thoroughly disproved that by the exposition of each of the commandments. But there's still a sort of Christianized legalism. And those who live in this legalism strongly object to the term legalism or legalistic. They strongly object to it, yet nonetheless it exists. And these aren't people that are against the law. In fact, if possible, these are people that are too much for the law. Because they practice it believing, what I just said a moment ago, that God will love them more because of it. That because they do this or they do that, because they try to be this or that, God will love them more. And so, in order to increase the love of God for them, they pile rules and regulations on top of the commandments, and they impose them on people, and in practice, they try to make themselves to appear holier than others. Now, in my experience and yours, you know those as rules of dress, rules for the length of your hair, rules for dancing, rules for movies, rules for for anything else that will separate people and make some look better than others. And so these rules are continually added to, and then preferences become principles. And it's the outward conformity to those rules that makes them better than other Christians, or at least better in their own eyes. And so they begin to judge themselves and other Christians as not being as good as them because they don't keep the same types of rules that they keep. And so they may not even be Christians at all because they don't live as we live. These are people that misunderstand the law as much as the first group. They're, they're polar opposites at, of the first, but they're in the same error, as much in error. I had a man tell me that had just left the Nazarene church. He said, I left that church because the rule book was literally this thick. And he said, I just couldn't keep all the rules any longer. And the truth is, there are many Baptist ministries who live in the same thing. There's just a list of rules that we are to keep. And so in the mix of that, in the mix of keeping rules, they forget about the heart. And they forget about what the condition of the heart really should be before, before God. And so they're just bound up in rules. And both of these groups, the antinomians and the legalists, are both driven by unbiblical motivations. The first group is driven by, driven by unconquered carnal desires that they don't want to give up. And the second group is driven by exaggerated self-righteousness. This is what makes us holy. Neither of those represents biblical apostolic motivation. But in this text, we get the right motivation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, the apostle said that we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things that are done in the body, whether they are good or bad. And that is the answer to the fallacious reasoning of antinomians, that we will receive for the things that we've done in the body. And so the things that we do in the body are an influence on the outcome of eternity. The law has an important relationship to the spiritual well-being of a Christian. And then in the text of 1 Corinthians 3, we see that the works of the believer will be judged as to what sort they are. So as much as the works will be judged, so is the motivation for those works. And so the legalist has no surer standing than an antinomian when he's judged by motivation. 
Now, another point that I want to make clear before we enter the study of the text is that this judgment is of believers, and it's not a judgment to determine punishment for sin. We'll explore that a little bit more. But for now, we need to understand that there is another judgment for sin. Unbelievers will appear at that judgment, not believers. That's the great white throne judgment that you read about in Revelation chapter 20. Unbelievers will be at that judgment. That is, people from all walks of life, all different types, criminals, murderers, rapists, thieves, adulterers, child molesters, they will be there, but also there will be bankers and investment advisors and lawyers, lots of lawyers, and housewives and and soccer moms and factory workers and computer technicians and grocery store clerks and your neighbors, people that appear good morally, good morally as far as the world's concerned, but they're not professors of Jesus Christ. So to make it very simple for you, everyone that thought that they were good enough to get into heaven on their own, everybody who never thought about whether they were good enough, everybody who doesn't care whether they're good enough, everybody who, doesn't, who knows that they aren't good enough, and yet they never thought this day would actually come, that we will stand in judgment before God, they will be there and they'll be judged for their sins. And none of them will be able to escape the penalty of hell. But the judgment seat of Christ is not that courtroom. We're not talking about unbelievers here. We're talking about the people of God. This is a judgment of believers. And they're not judged for sin. They're judged for rewards. Now I want us to see this in, in, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 3. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So first we see according to the scripture that there is a foundation that is laid. A foundation is laid. And always uh, upon entering a text at less than the beginning point, an explanation needs to be made of context. In the first part of this chapter, Paul had been discussing the tendency of the Corinthians to chase personalities. Much like preachers today, they had their groupies. Uh, the Corinthians chose their favorite pe- preacher. Some of them liked Peter. Some of them were partial to Apollos. Some were partial to Paul. But Paul cared nothing at all about idolizing personalities because the work that we do is the work of Christ. This is not the work of preachers. This is not about prideful personalities. This work is all about Christ. And quite frankly, the preacher needs to stand in the background. And what we need to do is to hide behind the cross, not stand in front of it to promote ourselves. In verse 10... Paul spoke of being a wise master builder. And his main theme there is how pastors and other ministers of the church are to build upon the foundation that is laid in Jesus Christ. The church is the operative critical factor here. It's not the preacher who somehow has made the church his own personal monument to what he's done. And you often see that. You go on church websites and read the bios. The pastor did this, he did that. He started with five, he has 5,000. Much is said about the preacher, but not very much about the Christ who is the Lord of the church. And so the main context is about building the Lord's church, building up God's people on the right foundation. But I believe there's, there's a broader application that can be made because we see in verse number 12 the meaning may be broadened here to be not only the pastor, but every individual member 
of Christ, if any man build upon this foundation. Now, then first, there is a foundation of the church. That's the doctrines of Christ. It is the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It's the teachings that we stand upon from the infallible Word of God. It's Christ Himself who is the living Word. He's the one who is the solid rock. He's the foundation and the only one on which we can build. And so Paul labored carefully to put that foundation under every body of believers that he organized into a church. We find that in the doctrinal sections of his epistles. And then he said, there are others that come along who build upon that foundation. Paul wasn't going to be in those churches forever, so there would be other men that would come along and they would preach and they would build on the foundation that was laid and they were to build correctly. And they were to stick to the Word of God. And they were to build a building on that foundation that matches the majesty of that foundation. But then there's also another sense here, that your life also has a foundation. As a believer, your foundation is also Christ. That foundation is your personal faith in Him. And that faith begins a journey for you. Your foundation is laid in His excellent Word and you must be very careful how you build on that foundation. Your initial foundation is your faith in Christ. But there isn't any building that stops with the foundation. We don't consider the foundation to be the building. The foundation is the beginning point. And there's always a building that goes on top of that. The builder proceeds to build, so he wants a structure to go on top of that, and what that building looks like and what it's going to be, what it's done, depends upon the kinds of materials that the builder uses. So you can travel to different neighborhoods in our city, and there are a variety of buildings, all sorts of buildings. They're different. The cost of those buildings is different, more or less, depending upon where they are and the kind of materials that are used. Years ago, I built some houses in Kentucky. I built the house that I lived in. I bought all the materials myself. I watched the masons and the carpenters and the roofers and the drywall installers and the electrician and the plumber. I mean, I watched everything as it went into the house. I was very careful to see that everything was done just right. I was concerned with all the materials and the workmanship. And I was also, of course, concerned with the foundation. And I knew that the foundation was good because I worked on that part myself. I had people, and I was there with them, that we dug down deep into the ground. And we put in the rebar and the concrete, and we make sure that that foundation was stable. I came to California, and it wasn't feasible for me to build my own house. I don't have the keys to Fort Knox like you need here to build your own house. And so I bought a track house, along with 450 that are next to it and look a lot like it. And I was never, never impressed by the assembly line form of building. That you start on one house, you throw all the cheap stuff in, just move on to the next one, and you build another one just like it. The point I want to make is that there's a foundation for your faith, and you are building on top of that foundation. You are building a superstructure on top of your foundation of faith. And that superstructure is built according to your sanctification. And the fine building materials that you put into this building, is that, that's, your, that's your obedience to Christ. That's your good spiritual efforts. 
that the Spirit affords you to use. And you need to take those materials and build upon your faith and not supply things for yourself of your own. You are to use the materials that the Lord Jesus Christ use you to, gives you to build that building. Do I need to tell you about the, the riches of Christ? Doesn't the Bible talk about all the riches that He has? And, and do you need to know about what God owns? Do you need to know the value of His quarries and His lumber mills and the top grades of building materials that He has? You have incalculable resources to draw from. Now, the main point is that a foundation is laid. The most excellent foundation has been laid. That's the faith of Jesus Christ. And the building that you build on top of that faith must match Him in its worth. And so your life and your efforts at building should never, ever obscure the beauty of Jesus Christ. They are to reflect Him in all of His majesty. Now, I hope you get that because they're... I've seen many, many Christians that show very, very little of the beauty of Christ. They have bitter attitudes. They lend no help to the church. They're never on the volunteer list. They hide out in the pew. They're oblivious to the work of the church and everything that goes on. Some of these are people that barely look like Christians when they're in here, much less when they're out in the world. I heard one preacher say that they're like the little boy who had a mutt dog. A man asked the little boy, what kind of dog is that? And the boy said, well, that's a police dog. And the man said, well, that doesn't look like a police dog. And the little boy said, well, he's undercover, you know. And that's, uh, that's a lot like Christians. They're, they're undercover Christians. They're stealth Christians. Nobody knows what they are. And I'm going to tell you something. You better be careful about calling yourself a believer because you may be too far undercover. I believe that Paul said, you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, and then you'll be saved. And I think the kind of faith that Paul was talking about is a faith that continues to confess Jesus Christ. A true faith in Him is not a faith that lasts for a day, or an hour, or an hour a day, a week, a month, or a year. A true faith in Jesus Christ is one that is always there. So real believers have something that they built on their foundation. And admittedly, it's not always the best. But they build something there. There's a structure of some kind that's there. And that can be seen and recognized as a Christian building of some sort or another based upon the materials that they've used to build that superstructure. Now secondly, the scriptures show that an inspection is made. At the judgment seat of Christ, an inspection will be made of your life. Your building is going to be judged for its quality, examined for its quality. Now, if you know anything about building, you know there are always inspectors. The inspectors always show up, usually not on time, not always when you need them, most of the time when you don't want them, but the inspector shows up. In my, in my building experience, the inspectors, at least in my opinion, we're not always the smartest people in the world. I hate to be unkind about this, but uh, back in Kentucky, most of the building inspectors that I knew were failed building contractors. And I don't know how failing at building qualifies you to be uh, an inspector, but that's what they had. And I, I just want to say, if there's anybody in here that's a Roner Park building inspector, or if there's anybody listening 
uh, to me on, on the podcast later, who's a Rona Park building inspector, I just want you to know, if you come here to inspect us, we will respect you. We will bow to you. We will bless the day that your mother gave you birth. We're not talking about you. The rest of all the inspectors, though, those are, well, I say it with all the best intentions that many of them are idiots. Harsh word to use. But I remember when we were, we were building an addition to a, to a house in Kentucky years ago, and uh, it started with the excavation of the basement, and we were about 10 feet underground, and in the footing for this building, we, this addition to this house, we'd put in wooden stakes, which you did to get the level of the concrete just right. That was standard procedure. Had been done thousands upon thousands of times, and, and uh, that's the way that we did it. So the inspector came, and before we poured the concrete, he said, no, you can't pour that concrete with those wooden stakes in there. If you pour the concrete with them in there, you're going to get them in your hands, you're going to have to pull all of them out. And so, being an inquisitive person I, I was, I said, why? And he appreciated my question because that gave him a chance to show off his engineering skills. And he said, because moisture will get into those stakes, those wooden stakes, and they will freeze, and they will expand, and they will break the concrete. And I said, well, you are a very bright fellow. But have you considered that we're 10 feet underground? And the weather in Kentucky is not like the permafrost in Greenland. And so if it freezes 10 feet underground, it's the second coming of the Ice Age, and this footing's the least thing we're going to be worried about. <laughs> well, I learned logic is useless on inspectors. And so that argument fell on deaf ears. And somewhere, somewhere in his education, he'd read a book that said, in outer space, there are freezing temperatures. And there are. Did you know that? Outer space, there's freezing temperatures. And so he reasoned, well, the Earth is in space. So therefore, you got the picture. But, so that's my rant on building inspectors today. So, but this inspector that we're talking about is not like that. He knows the materials. He knows the consequences. He is the master architect of lives. And he'll look at your superstructure and he'll examine the quality of its materials. Now you see in verse number 12, there are various materials. There's gold, silver, wood, hay, and stubble. Verse 13 says that every man's work will be manifest. That means that it's going to be visible to the inspector. He'll see it and he will evaluate the building materials. And so he'll see, what did you do for Christ? And the range of those things is from gold, which is the very best, to stubble, that is the worst. Now there's a wide range of commentary on what this actually means. And it's as wide as the materials are. People have all kinds of different opinions. But I think that the best, the best interpretation of this is that stubble, when you say wood, hay, stubble, stubble does not represent sin. And I want you to understand why. And that's because if you are a believer, your sins have already been taken care of at Calvary. When you stand before God, there's not going to be sins there. There's not going to be anything resurrected about sin when you stand before God. No sin is revealed in this judgment. Christ, who's the inspector, will see what sort of works that you did. Gold is the best. Silver is good. But there's also some beautiful items that are made of wood, aren't there? There's mahogany doors. There are oak hardwood floors. There are poplar fluted jams. Then there are some houses that are built of hay. It's a house, but it may be a house with a thatched roof. Some are made of stubble. 
And stubble here means like grass that's been added to mud to make bricks. So you have some houses that are mud huts. Not the best kind of house, but it is a house. Now, in the early days of our country, the pioneers crossed the prairies and there were hardly any trees, and so they cut sod and built houses out of sod. And so their interior decorating was dirt walls, dirt floors. It's a house, but it's by no means the best house. So these are the building materials. Some, some will make a fine house like that's made from gold. Gold be at the very top, that's the very best. In the Bible, gold stands for deity. And so if you build your spiritual house out of works of gold, then that makes you the most like God because gold represents deity. So I believe that gold in the context is a life that's centered in obedience to God a person that's given himself over to the control of the Holy Spirit and he's filled with the Spirit and he uses everything that God gives to the best of his ability. Gold represents the eternal, the things that last, things that endure. A few years ago, uh, Alan Greenspan made an interesting comment about gold. He was being interviewed about the gold standard for our currency and he said, all the gold in the world that has been mined since the beginning of time is still in existence today. That's simple, but a very profound truth, and it's true. Gold never goes away. That is an element, isn't it? A basic element. It never goes away. You can heat it, you can melt it, and anything that's mixed with the gold separates from it. The impurities go up in a vapor. That all disintegrates, and there's nothing that's left but fine gold. This is what the fire does in verse number 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So the inspector will apply the fire test to your works, and works that are done with the wrong motivation will be burned up. They don't count for very much. Now, remember, this is all metaphorical. These things are not sins. I know there's some people that say, well, what he's talking about here is the fires of purgatory. That these are, these are the sins that you committed and you didn't yet pay for while you were on the earth. And so now when you stand before God, he's going to apply a fire test to that and, and you're going to suffer in purgatory for your sins. No, this is not about purgatory. This is about discarding things that you did that were good, but they're not very much value. Now let me address legalists for a minute. The legalist cuts his hair above the collar. She wears a dress that's below her knees. He stops going to movies. She goes or doesn't go to the prom where she's manhandled by the boys. And those are all good things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that. Um, perhaps those are good things in their own right. But when we insert into that, that that's done to make God love us more, to make us something that we appear to be on the outside but not on the inside. We want to make the outside more holy to get more love from God. That's a wrong motivation. So that motivation of doing those things goes up in smoke. God doesn't count any of that. It's no good. It's moral. No question that it's moral. And it's an effort that you do. It looks fine. But if you don't have a heart for Christ when you do that, the inspection will show it and you will be examined for the motives... And if your sacrifice, seemingly for Christ, is to get a good name for yourself or to get a pat on the back from the preacher, 
then you get nothing at all from it in the end. And the same is true for a preacher. If a preacher builds a church for the numbers, for recognition to be seen, who tries to steal glory away from Christ, or as we talked about some time ago, photobombs Jesus, then that will be revealed and the fire will burn it up. Now sometimes stubble in your life is settling for less than you could be. God gifts every Christian with one spiritual gift, at least one. But if you like to do things, other things better than using your gifts, then you'll get up there in the judgment, and Christ will say, that's not gold. That's just hay, and that's stubble. It's not the best for you. Now, it might be good, but it's not the best for you. It might be that you rarely show up around here, and you have no jobs in the church because you aren't dependable enough to be counted on. Oh, you do good things. There's no question about that. You do some good things, but you've settled on lesser things than what you should be doing. And so you're commanding your life, not Christ. But you have the good game on. You've got the face on. Oh, sure, you can criticize, but you're not much to be counted on. Well, there's going to be an inspection for those things. Yes, you did some good things, but you neglected what you should be doing. Jesus said that you can tithe every bit of your income and every increase that comes your way, but then you omit weightier things like judgment, mercy, and faith. You are qualified for ministry by your gift. But you settle for something else. You're gifted to do more, but you do less. And the lesser thing is still good, but it's stubble, it's not gold. And so your house is not the best that it can be, and it won't stand the scrutiny of the fire. Let me show you something else. You might think, well, well, the preacher, he's the one who builds with gold. Some preachers want you to think that way. And you may say, well, only the preacher can build with gold because God uses preachers in very special ways. He gets to stand behind the pulpit. He gets to preach to the people. He gets to lead the people. And that's gold. And the rest of us settle for silver and wood. No. God's not going to judge you according to someone else's ability. Verse number 12 says, anybody, I don't care who you are, you can build with gold. Did you not read where James said every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above? Just look over at the fourth chapter for just a minute, verse number 7. 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now, I just want to tell you, tell you from that verse that everybody receives ability from God. And God has an abundant supply of gold for everybody to build with. And he's going to judge you according to your ability, not the ability of Charles Spurgeon, whose sermons have circled the globe for 125 years. And you're not going to be judged for what George Mueller did in... in in taking care of thousands of orphans and teaching them the Word of God, you're not going to be judged according to what our tireless missionary, Wilson Maongo, does in Africa on peanuts and lives in one of those mud houses and gives everything that he gets to the ministry. His talents are not going to judge you. God judges you on the way that you use your gifts. And you are to use them in the best way. And they're gold. Let me take you back to the commandments. You see all in the commandments all these thou shalt not, thou shalt not. 
Don't do this, don't do that. Do you remember what we said? That on the other side of every thou shalt not, there is a thou shalt. There is a thou shalt, and what you do with the thou shalt is as important as what you do with the shalt not. For example, thou shalt not commit adultery. I hope that you don't. The thou shalt is, thou shalt be faithful. Consider this command, number five. Honor your father and your mother. That is a command about spheres of authority. It starts with uh, honoring God. There's honor and obeying the leaders of your church. We are to obey the leaders of our country. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, obey Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. A few weeks ago, I, I asked the fundamentals class at the end of the lesson, we were studying obedience, and I said, is there any area of your life that you could be better in obedience? Lucy raised her hand, and she said, I need to be in more submission to my husband. I honestly did not know how to take that when she said it. Uh, I was almost speechless. I always have a rejoinder. It seems like I always do, but I was almost speechless with that because Lucy can be comical. And, and uh, I don't know if she was joking about it, but after the service, I did learn the truth. Eric went out with a fist pump and he said, Yes, I get, to be he I get to be the head of my house again, finally. I always knew something was bothering Eric. I just couldn't put my finger on it. But what I'm trying to tell you is, that is the gold standard for a wife. She gets gold from that. She gets gold, and God's going to say, that's good. That's the material that will last. You pass the inspection. You understand what I'm saying? The gold is not necessarily that you sold everything that you have and gave it to the poor. Now you stand on a street corner with a sign that says the end is near. That's not necessarily gold. The gold is obedience to be the best in every area, to obey all of God's commandments, to have a heart of love, and to use the gifts that God gives you. That's how you build on the foundation in a way that's worthy and matches the beauty of Christ. And what I'm trying to tell you is you're on a failure because you don't stand behind a pulpit. You get gold from a Sunday school class. You get gold from singing in the choir. You get gold from being on the yard crew. You get gold from being out there putting up a sign all day long on a Saturday. That's how you get gold. Love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself. Obey God in all things. That's the commandment. And that's how we receive gold. Now let me go on because we want to get to the end of this before Judgment Day. So a foundation is laid. A foundation is laid. Inspection is made. Lastly, thirdly, our salvation is obtained. Verse 14, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He shall be saved. Are we not saved until this judgment? Are we saved depending on the outcome of this judgment? No. This is salvation in the larger sense, which is spoken of in three tenses. You were saved. That's from the condemnation of sin. That is your justification. You are being saved in the present. Now, that is your sanctification. And you will be saved from the presence of sin in the future, which is your glorification. And so at the judgment seat of Christ, that's where you are. You're at this last stage. You pass through the trials and all the labors of life. 
You're through all the besetting things that held you back from your perfect service to the Lord. And at this stage, everything that fell short of Christ's desire for you is burned away. And all that's left is this beautiful building for Christ. You see, every Christian life ends in a beautiful building. There are no slums in heaven. No buildings, no shoddy buildings are constructed there. No building materials make ugly neighborhoods. All that's left at the end of this judgment is the perfection of Jesus Christ. Now the scripture says that you will enter into heaven with rewards. Some enter into heaven with more than others. That's the point of this entire passage. Some enter into heaven with more than others. We don't understand everything there is to know about heaven. We do understand this, everybody will be happy. There won't be any jealousy because somebody got more rewards than you. Some will have a greater capacity to enjoy heaven, but everybody will enjoy it. It's the good works of a Christian that makes that determination. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is the thing that separates all of this out. And so you may hear what I've just said, and you may read the Scriptures, and you say, well, that's no problem then. Everybody is going to be happy in heaven regardless of the number of rewards, and so I don't need to do very much. Just let me slide on in by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, or as Job said, by the skin of my teeth. But if you think that way, and you're unconcerned about what I've said, you don't have the heart of a Christian. If you're a person who thinks that belief in Christ is just fire insurance, I don't have to go to hell because I'm a believer in Christ. That's all I care about. If it keeps me out of hell, that's good enough. If that's the way you think, you're only a Christian in your judgment, not God's. You see, the judgment that he's talking about here is called a bema seat. In Greek, that means a place of victory. This is a place for winners. It's a place for those who have overcome the world. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And our faith is laid in that blessed foundation which is Jesus Christ. And what God never does, God never does, He never renews a heart and leaves it in the sin that condemned it. So this is what I encourage you to do. Examine your heart before the inspector does. The inspector is going to be at both judgments. He looks at two very different criteria. When he examines you, the question is, will he find faith there? Will he find someone whose faith developed in the way that it should, or is the right kind of saving faith, which is always, can I serve Christ in a better way? It's not, how little can I do and get by and still be accepted with God? No, it's Christ has done so much for me. God loves me so much. God has given me His own Son. He didn't leave me alone, as I said a moment ago. I'm never alone with Him. And because He's done so much for me, I want to serve Him in the very best way possible. I don't want to come short and leave my life to be examined and there is nothing but stubble, a mud house. I want gold. I want God to examine my life and find gold. Two judgments and two outcomes. One, the judgment seat of Christ. The other, the great white throne judgment. Friends, you better be sure at which one you will appear. And you want to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Inspect your life before the inspector does. And then he won't uncover bad building materials. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for the truth of your word and for every Christian here to examine their heart even at this very moment to discover what is my service to Christ like? Now we know by reading your word, Lord, that you said that your work is done through your church. This means that we can't ignore your church. We can't do our own thing outside of the church and never care what's going on here. Even as the men that we saw yesterday that love their church so much that they would want to be here to anything that the church needs, I'm available, I'm ready for that, I'll give my service to that. Not that I've got so many other things that I need to do, I never care about what's going on at the church. Well, it's not just the fact that physical work was done. That's not the important thing, and I hope and pray that everybody in here understands that. It's not the physical work that's done, it's the heart that's in it. The motivation of the heart that's behind what we do, that we do these things because we love Jesus Christ and the church is His body. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to some Christian today who would say, say in their own heart that they would say this, my heart has not been right. My heart has not been dedicated to my church to give what I should to my church and thereby to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help me stop doing my own thing, but to be there for my church, for the Lord Jesus Christ and to do His work. And then Lord, I pray today for someone who's not a Christian and they need to see themselves not at this judgment seat, but at that great white throne where unbelievers will be judged and there's not a thing that they've ever done that God's going to accept. The only thing that makes us pleasing to our God is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. May we trust You and You alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.